just did what I do best. I took your little plan and I turned it on itself. Look what I did to this city with a few drums of gas and a couple of bullets. Hmm? You, you know what I noticed? Nobody panics when things go according to plan. Even if the plan is horrifying. If tomorrow I tell the press that like a gangbanger will get shot, or a truckload of soldiers will be blowing up, nobody panics. Because it's all part of the plan. But when I say that one little old mare will die, well then everyone loses their minds. Introduce a little anarchy. Upset the established order, and everything becomes chaos. I'm an agent of chaos. Oh, and you know the thing about chaos? It's fear. of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And we have reached our uh, the, the final week of our, hey, let's have our spouses on the show thing, and I'm very excited about it. Last week we had my wife, Melissa, and this week our guest is none other than Liz Woodington. Liz, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, you know, I I, I am good. Um, depending on when this comes out, this might seem not topical anymore, but the world at large is on fire and it's crazy. Um, so I think we're all doing the best that we can right now. Um, yeah. Yep. I say good as in I'm alive and, yeah, and, and living. Yes. Yes, and the that, people the people that you care about are also alive and, and yes, living. Yeah, yes, yeah. this is also true. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, uh, we've got. Oh man, I can't even. I can't even stand how excited I am <laughs> to talk about this movie and and this particular filmmaker today. That, of course, is The Dark Knight. But before we get there, we have to bring you some recommendations this week, Liz. As our guest, would you mind going first? Certainly. Um, so my recommendation this week is an older film called uh, Flight with Denzel Washington. Um, this movie, when it first came out, um, Ian went and saw it with his friend Josh, and I was super upset about it because I really wanted to see it. Um, and I finally got to see it a couple months later when it came out on video. Um, and it, it has ultimately become a comfort movie for me for multiple reasons. Um First off, the soundtrack is amazing. Like, if you don't like the movie, you will love the soundtrack. Like, I just think that that is just something I have to hammer home because it's great. Go listen to it. Um, secondly, um, one of the big reasons this film took a huge impact for me is because, A, I hate flying. Um, I have a massive fear of it. So, uh, for some reason or another, this film made me feel okay about getting in a plane that might, you know, lose its... Um, lose its engines uh the third 
uh, thing that gets me with this film is I have uh, a couple of people close to me in my life that have suffered with addiction. Uh, not to be a spoiler alert, uh, but this film heavily focuses on alcoholism and heroin addiction. Um, and to watch him go through all these motions of being an alcoholic, it really helped me see the perspective from someone who has an addiction problem. And that really spoke to me on a huge level because he's so good at this one thing. He's really good fucking pilot. Like he really, um, that's his thing. That's what he does. And I think his whole life, he's like, I'm good at this one thing. So everything else is okay. Everything else is okay. Even though I have an alcohol addiction. And so just to watch him go through those motions and come to a point where he literally says in the movie like I can't tell any more lies I've maxed out on my lies it's just it's such a powerful story and it is I sincerely believe one of Denzel's greatest performances that is so highly underrated I know he was acknowledged during award season for this but I genuinely think he didn't get the credit he deserved for it oh I I couldn't agree I could not agree anymore with that um yeah that was one I'd have to go back and look at my list but that was that was in my, the top three films of, I think that was 2012. Um, that movie is, is astonishing. And I remember I was in grad school at the time and uh, my, one of my professors who I, I'm not going to name drop cause I don't, I don't want to tell his story, but he, I think he suffered from alcoholism for, for quite some time. And he said, you will be, you'll be blown away by his performance. And uh, I, I, I truly was that though. got that fucking shot of the, um, the little alcohol bottle oh, in the fridge yes. as it as it the, the camera pushes in and you're not sure if he's gonna and then it's the way it's swiped off screen it um yeah that movie it, it really uh, yeah i think that's a i think that's a mount rushmore denzel performance i think i, per, I mean and that's me and i and i'm biased too but i think it's it and it's in it fits that underrated corner it would be it would it's it's not malcolm x it's not his oscar win. it's not training day it's not glory but it is it's the one it's it's his most vulnerable too. It's just, it's such a, it's a Denzel we never get to see really. And it's, God, it's so fucking good. Great fucking pick. Great fucking pick. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I think something we need to highlight as well, if we're going to talk a little bit about flight is the supporting cast. The supporting cast, just all of them knock it out of the park, whether it's Don Cheadle, Bruce Greenwood, um, uh, John Goodman. I mean, John Goodman only has two scenes, two or three scenes, and he just, he he lives in your memory as being like a part of the fabric of this film and the the character that Liz and I really bonded over i think on this last watch was James Badge Dale as the uh the the bald guy the the guy that's going through chemotherapy that discovers them on the stairs and his little scene which i guess it's one of those moments i guess people could argue that you could it cut you could cut it cuz it kind of like drags the plot but i think it's really an important moment yeah for sure yeah Awesome. Yeah. What a great recommend. God, I gotta, I'm gonna have to put that on soon. Um, cause that's a, that's a great I kn- movie. I knew you'd be excited about that. Yeah, definitely. Cause, cause I'm, um, yeah, cause I'm going to guess we've talked at length about Daniel Day Lewis, not deserving that Oscar for Lincoln. And I'm going to assume you put Denzel way above DDL for the Oscar win. I, I'm personally, yes. I mean, I don't have anything against, I have nothing against DDL's performance in Lincoln, but there's something I just connect to more with, um, with Denzel and that, although I got that's a perfect segue into my recommend this week. Um, 
Uh, Melissa picked a movie uh, Sunday night, and we watched Apocalypto, and I I just don't like that movie. I've I've seen it twice now, and I'm of the mindset that I just don't like it. However, the next night, I wanted to watch a better movie, kind of in the same realm, and so uh, my recommend is uh, the 1992 Michael Mann-directed The Last of the Mohicans. Uh, yes. <laughs> um this uh, this movie uh, it takes place during the the French Indian War. Um, Daniel Day Lewis plays Hawkeye, uh, who is um, he is a white man who's been taken in by uh, the last of the Mohican tribe. His father, uh, played by Russell Means, has one of the best uh, Native American names I've ever heard. Uh, Chingachgook, which is just uh, that's just awesome. That's like a mouthful of greatness that you get to say Chingachgook. Um, and fucking West Duty, who ends up being a Michael Mann regular, plays Magua, who was real like a really great villain like a great villain not just in his performance but the backstory that he's given and and how this you know it was Mon- Monroe's family or uh, it was Monroe who killed his family and there's just a lot going on and and and, and, and in the midst of all of this great battle stuff you've got this great romance that's building between Madeline Stowe who plays Cora and and Daniel Day-Lewis um it's it's just epic the cinematography is beautiful the fucking score of this movie is is great and oh my god everything under the waterfall like like you know i I, a couple months ago i watched the notebook for the first time with melissa and i get why it was what it was but god when he's when he's telling her that he will find her under the waterfall as that's happening i mean it's so goddamn beautiful and i believe it every step of the way um like uh, DDL's first like big budget film, and I I don't know man this this movie and it's not too long either. You know Michael Mann usually makes a pretty lengthy film. It's just over two hours, even with the director's cut. Um, I I just I, I love this movie. It's a great movie. Just stay alive. I will find you. I will find you. Yeah, it's great. It's he he kind of overdoes it a bit, but I I still dig it. No man, he's screaming because the waterfall is so loud. He's got to make his point. I don't think it's over the top at all. Not at all. And Wes Studi, I'm so glad they gave him the honorary Oscar last year because of of any Native American actor, he has really stood his ground and made sure that the characters he portrays really do justice and and do respect to Native American people. He's one of these guys that has never sold out, and I have so much respect for him. Oh, for sure, and and I mean that I re- I really love the kind of roles he does later on. I mean, I just like like in Heat, you know, I I just love that he's he's one of the the cops. I mean, it's a great and his um oh, it's not oh, it's not Scott Glenn. Who's the who's Buffalo Bill? I can't think of the other uh like Buffalo Bill and Sons of the Lambs. Sons of the Lambs, yeah, that actor's name because he's in Heat too. He's one of the other cops. Right, on, right, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm blanking on his name, but yeah. You know, oh, Ted Levine. Be, Ted Levine. Ted um, Levine. He'll always be Buffalo Bill. Yeah, yeah. Um, but any, anyway, so yeah, that's that's uh, last of the Mohicans. I, I it's a great it and it, it hits so many niches. It's romantic and it's 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 got your battle scenes if that's what you're into. It's got a great score. It's got great cinematography. Yeah, I can't say anything else. Last of the Mohicans, awesome. Ian. Well, that that brings brings us to my recommendation, and you know, I could have sworn, you know, going into this episode, I could have like bet vital parts of my anatomy the fact that Liz would have recommended Batman Returns because that was her first. You'll probably talk about it during the episode, but that was her first Batman movie, her first movie in theaters, which explains some things because she was way too young 
to see that film. That was you were what, like four years old when that came out? <laughs> Way too young. Uh, I so I could have sworn that Liz would have recommended Batman Returns, and you would have recommended Batman Forever, because I I know how how much you love that movie, As which is. Should. I mean, I'm glad Liz is in your corner. I see. I I guess I feel like I would save that conversation for when we do the Tim. For some reason, the Tim Burton's and the the Joel Schumacher's. That's one. That's like one universe to me. I don't. Nolan's trilogy is something different. And and yes, I do have a very, very soft spot for Batman Forever, and I always will. Uh, just like the way I have a soft spot for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. But um, I, I, w- I didn't necessarily want to... I didn't know how much we were going to delve into the uh, original Batman. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I got... So well, there's a say. spoiler. there's a spoiler for when we do Batman 89, you're probably going to recommend Batman Forever. Anyway, uh, before I get way too off topic, uh, my recommend this week is, I think, the greatest comic book movie ever made, and that is 2009's Watchmen, directed by Zack Snyder. Now, I know this one This one is really, really divisive because of how beloved the graphic novel is. I mean, it's, it's one of the best-selling trade paperbacks of all time. Uh, it's one of... It's considered to be actually one of the greatest... English language novels of all time. It's only it's one of the only comic books, if not the only comic book that's ever been nominated for both the Hugo and the Eisner Award. But I think I think Zack Snyder did something really special with this. Now a lot of people are gonna joke about it. They're gonna remember this movie for Billy Crudup's big blue penis, or they're gonna remember it for the fact that they changed the ending so that it didn't end with a giant squid being manifested in the middle of New York City, but a stacked cast, man. This movie has Malin Ackerman, Billy Crudup, Matthew Good, Jackie Earl Haley, who had only just come out of retirement a couple of years before. He's well known as one of the kids from the original Bad News Bears with Walter Matthau. He had just a couple of years ago, or just a couple of years before this, he had done Little Children, which, that, oh. fuck, fuck me running. That movie is perfect. And the fact Incredible. that neither, neither it or In the Bedroom or In the Book is a fucking travesty. Because Todd Field is one of those guys that... When the fuck are we going to see another Todd Field movie? Because I'm getting a little impatient about that. that. That's a great question. That is a great question. Uh, you've also got uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Carla Gugino, Stephen McCaddy, and Patrick Wilson. And it's for anybody who hasn't seen it, this is like an alternate 1985. Nixon is still president. He's eliminated term limits. And we're at the point where the Cold War is at its very height, and superheroes have been outlawed now for about a decade, and the murder of one of them, the comedian played by Jeffrey Jane Morgan, sort of brings them back together, and they discover this larger conspiracy. I mean, it's, it builds on everything that Zack Snyder did in 300, which I'm not a massive fan of. Like, I get it, it's cool, but it's not much else besides that. And he tackles what I think most other comic book movies are really afraid to do. I mean, it's got a lot of violence and a lot of sex and a lot of deeper philosophical issues like, you know, real, real sacrifice and what it means to sort of put the the fate of the world before yourself and, you know, all that sort of great hero dilemma stuff that, that manifests in, in good comic book writing. Like, I just, I every time I watch it, it just makes me fucking happy that somebody had the balls to take on this project. And thankfully, we got this instead of Terry Gilliam's version that he was planning in the 90s, because as much as I love Gilliam, you know he would have fucked that up. 
Well, I like I tend to like Gilliam's more grounded work. Uh, I mean, I, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, well, I I think I think we can extrapolate based on the rest of his movies. It would have been a shit show. I mean, I really. <laughs> it's it's long. There's three cuts of it. You can pick your poison. There's a cut that runs two and a half hours. There's a three hour cut, or there's the quote unquote ultimate cut, which is I I don't even know how long it is. It's like three and a half, almost four hours long, but. I only really have two complaints with the movie, and that is, one, the end song is a cover of Bob Dylan's Desolation Row by My Chemical Romance, and My Chemical Romance missed the point completely. They fucked that song up. And then the other one is actually song-related, and like Liz talked about in Flight, this also has an amazing soundtrack that ranges from Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, you know, a lot of 80s stuff, because obviously it's set in the 80s. But they layer in just a little bit an instrumental version of Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, under one of Ozymandias' scenes. And not having read the graphic novel and not knowing where it was going, I instantly went, he's the bad guy. Because you use the song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. So what else What else could that indicate? That's fair. That's fair. Liz, do you have any Watchmen thoughts? Honestly, I've watched this movie about four or five times now. Um... I I like it. I think it's a great comic book movie. I I do think it doesn't get the love it deserves. Um but I I do have a hard time getting past uh Manhattan's uh blue big dick. Be dead honest with you. It uh I don't know what it is. I know it doesn't define the movie, but something about uh Manhattan's just his character. It just I don't think I don't think they went big enough. He he could have hung well, well, I'm not talking more. about. I'm not. I, I was using his dick as like a, a figurative sense. Uh, he he. It just that character doesn't doesn't really get to me too much. I, I just can't. <laughs> I can't get attached to him. Well, that, you're not a Superman fan, so that that makes sense. He is essentially playing Superman. a version of I'm Superman. Sorry if that alienates half of your crowd. I just I I, I hate Superman. Sorry. <laughs> I you know I. Our crowd is probably very, very diverse on their opinions on on certain movies. I mean, we we shit on not too long ago. We shat on one of like the most classically appreciated films of all time, and Breathless. So, uh, saying Superman sucks is is fine. I I, I, I just I, can't. That, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably. And you're probably right. I, I I don't like Superman, so why would I like Manhattan? That's just not gonna. They they kind of go hand in hand. So. Well, cool. Well, there we go. Three. Three uh, great recommendations this week uh, with Flight and The Last of the Mohicans and Watchmen. So now let's get into it. Let's let's talk about The Dark Knight, directed, of course, by Christopher Nolan, uh, written uh, by him and his brother Jonathan Nolan uh, and Christopher Nolan and uh, uh, David Goyer kind of came up with the story. Um, Our cast. Here we go. Christian Bale plays Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman. Michael Caine plays Alfred. Heath Ledger, uh, of course, famously plays the Joker. Gary Oldman as a de- um, uh, detective and then eventually Commissioner Gordon in the film. Aaron Eckhart plays Harvey Dent, a.k.a. Two-Face. Maggie Gyllenhaal plays Rachel Dawes. And Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox. Those are the the big players. Um, I have a couple others that I, I, I like to just give a shout-out to, but I, I, I'll stop there. I want to... Are there any other smaller bit parts that you two want to shine a little light on? Well, I'll just chime in right here as expected. Uh, Killian Murphy and his little bit as the scarecrow, of course. Of course. 
Killian Murphy is quite the subject of debate in this household. Liz is absolutely over the hills, like completely smitten with Killian Murphy, which makes no sense when you look at somebody like me. <laughs> it's either it's either really skinny Irish guys or huge beefy Swedish blonde hair blue eye guys like Alexander Skarsgård, which I I don't know where I fit in between those two, but there we go. I just I'm gonna try to sidestep that as much as possible. Ian, thank you. Adam. Any other? Yeah, any other uh, 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 smaller smaller roles you want to give some some appreciation to? Well, I I love that, and this is something that we'll get into next week with our big Nolan episode. But I love that he gives you know uh, actors of a bygone era a sort of he does the Tarantino thing where he tries to bring people back. So in this one, it's Eric Roberts. Uh, a very famous 80s and, and 90s star who plays uh, Maroney. And then you've also got William Fitchner in a very small role at the beginning. I love William Fitchner. A lot of people will know him from stuff like Crash, Armageddon, Black Hawk Down. He plays the bank manager. And then, of course, right at the end, we've got Tommy Tiny Lister yep. as the, uh, the prisoner that ends up throwing away the detonator. I love his role in this. Uh, the other two that I want to give a, a quick shout out to are Nestor Carbonell, who uh, Lost fans will recognize, and also one of my favorite actors, like just character actors, uh, Nikki Cat as like an unnamed SWAT officer who's riding with a then masked Gary Oldman. Um, I always liked him. Uh, I think he's he's just a he's I, I love him in Boiler Room which is like one of my like all time favorite movies. Maybe that says a lot about me. I don't know. Um, cool. Great. Uh, Christopher Nolan has two other movies in the book. They are Memento and Inception. And as Ian alluded to, we will talk much more about those movies and all of Nolan's movies next week as we do our deep dive definitive ranking of his films. When it comes to accolades, um, so this movie uh, was up for a bunch of Academy Awards. It won two. Uh, Heath Ledger won Best Supporting Actor for his performance in this, and it also won Sound Editing. Uh, the movie lost cinematography, editing, and sound mixing to Slumdog Millionaire, which would ultimately go on to win Best Picture, and it lost visual effects, makeup, and production design to The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Do we want to pause here and talk a little bit about how uh, there's no real data or facts behind this, but how uh, this movie was sort of the infamously the one that prompted the Academy to raise its um, the number of films up for Best Picture from five to up to ten. Well, that's there's a lot of it seems like there's a lot of backlash because of this film, and actually, Wally was the other one. When I was taking my mm -hmm. notes, I noticed a lot of people were a little disappointed that that film didn't get more love at uh, awards time. So I do have the I do have the the five that were nominated for director. I've got Danny Boyle, who ultimately won for Slumdog Millionaire. Fincher was nominated for Ben Button. Gus Van Sant was nominated for Milk. Ron Howard was nominated for Frost Nixon, and Stephen Daldry was nominated for The Reader. So with those five in mind, do we think that Christopher Nolan was robbed? Uh, oh, yes. Oh, very much so. Um, and uh, as this is all the same year, so hopefully this won't take us too off the rails. Not too long ago, uh, Melissa and I rewatched Revolutionary Road, and uh, um, not so not only was um, Christopher Nolan robbed 
of a, of a Best Director nomination. But Kate Winslet just straight up won Best Actress for the wrong movie that year. Um, the Reader is not good. I haven't seen it since I saw it, but The Reader is not a good movie. Um, and I'm not just saying that because it's about characters I don't necessarily cling to or like, um, although I do think the Ray Fiennes character, both the younger version and the older version, is somebody I just don't, I don't care to watch. I don't care about his story. Um, but but Kate Winslet in, in Revolutionary Road is... Like I, I like astonishing isn't a strong enough word. She's she's amazing in that movie, um, and I, well, I don't know. You've got the right person. You've got the right person on here for that because Liz is a, a diehard Kate Winslet fan, and I, I don't think that she's bad in the reader. It's just I, I think her work in this is is so much more unique and detailed and specific and I and I yeah I'm also charmed by the fact that it's her and Leo again sure that and that totally works I like them as this couple um I just think this year I think and and the reader uh I think infamously too is is one of the uh I would call it's one of the Weinstein pushes it's one of these movies that really shouldn't have gotten any nominations if I'm being totally honest and because Weinstein knows how to campaign and do what he does, whatever the fuck that actually is, uh, this got way, way more than it should have. And um, so, I, I yes, I think, I think, I do think that Christopher Nolan was absolutely robbed of a of a, a best director nomination. As we'll get through through the movie too, um, this movie is uh, I, what he does with the camera is pretty fucking amazing. So that's my opinion. Well, while we're while we're talking about. Revolutionary Road in a sort of ancillary way. I just want to throw it out there. Michael Shannon in Revolutionary Road was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And I think and I think in a year where uh, Heath Ledger isn't playing the Joker, I think he wins for Revolutionary Road. And I am 100% behind that. I fell in love with Michael Shannon in this film. And it's, it's one of those performances where I went, that guy, I have to see everything this guy is in. You know, that the best supporting actor that year is kind of crazy because you have you have Michael Shannon, uh, you have um, Josh Brolin in Milk, obviously Heath Ledger. Um, that's the year that Robert Downey Jr. is nominated for Tropic Thunder, too. Like, it, it's just a a hodgepodge of of we're just we're just putting a whole bunch of different eggs in this basket. Uh, which I mean, I, I'm all I. I, I'm all for you know a bunch of different types of roles in there, but uh, I just that definitely was a, a weird year for the Oscars, I must say. I, I also think too, not just you know talking about whether or not Nolan was was robbed, but also the film was up for a, a, a PGA award, which at the time was also five films, and you know usually is a really good precursor to what is going to get nominated, and I, I guess between the DGA nom and the PGA uh, nom it when you get both of those two it's usually hand in hand not that you're going to win per se but that you will get a nomination and I think I I, I do think um, that that was a bit odd and, and we'll get in, we'll get into this more next week as well but I do think that the Academy has some kind of silent grudge against Christopher Nolan I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll pose that theory more <laughs> I, I also want to just uh, like stretch it out a little bit on that. I think this was just not trying to be on the side of the Academy, but I also feel like this was the first major grossing comic book movie that had come out 
at that time. Like, like there was a big spike in the 90s, you know, when you had all the Batmans and and vice versa. But but when it came to like these these big money action movies, these big money things like Iron Man wasn't until 2008. So and and it was kind of like that was that was not going to make it into the Academy's list. So this was the first time they were kind of dealing with a film that wasn't so uh, what's the right I'm I'm losing the word here but that 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 it was it was a fun movie it was a comic book movie it's based off a comic book and so maybe that contributed to it not getting enough attention because there had been so many movies prior made about comic books that just were lackluster they weren't up to the academy's standards you know that they obviously have whether spoken or unspoken and so there there might have been a challenge there I agree. I think I do think that was part of the kind of and and this is also at this point now twelve years ago before the big push to include uh, more members into the academy of different ages and races to help sort of have more interesting picks make it into uh, the batch of nominees. Um, so yeah, I think I think a bunch of old white fuddy duddies basically saw this and went, well, we can't have this be nominated for best picture, <laughs> and and that's sort of where we were. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely what. You know, this movie comes out this year or, or last year or within the last five years or so. You definitely have a much more serious Best Picture race. Yeah, I think so, too. I agree. Um, uh, bringing it back to Heath Ledger, he he won so many of of the awards that you could possibly win during the season. Um, he won the Globe. He won the SAG. He won BAFTA. He won the Critics' Choice. He won at LAFCA. He won at uh, the New York Critics' Choice. And segueing to my good friend Ian, he also won at the Kansas City Film Critics. Yeah, you want to talk about them a little bit? Oh, I don't. I don't know how much Liz has been keeping up, but this is. Uh, I, I guess it's become a sort of uh, a shout out to you a little bit because Liz is from Kansas. She was born in Casey Mo. Uh, so, you know, we do, whenever it's possible, we call out the Kansas City Film Critics. I think uh, it was kind of accidental at first, and now it's become kind of a staple on this show. But uh, anyway, yeah, he did, uh, he did win Best Supporting Actor at the KC, from the KC Film Critics, and they also gave it Best Sci-Fi, Fantasy, or Horror Film. Oh, man. I guess it's kind of science fiction-y. I don't know that I... Uh... That, 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 that categorization isn't a, yeah. isn't very accurate, but it's a it's Kansas City, so I'm going to say that. I, I did, I did want to also shout out, and it's been a while since we've, we've covered a film like this, but this was the, the highest grossing film in, in 2008, um, and, uh, and, and I, I, I always like when the highest grossing film of the year is a movie that I, I actually like because... So many times in the last 20 years, it's it's a sequel. It's something that I don't give a shit about. It's the fourth Transformers or the the fucking third Hunger Games or whatever. And I just I just I can't I can't bring myself to give a shit. And and I, I always like it was something that I think is actually really good. It is actually the highest grossing film of the year. So uh, another shout out to The Dark Knight for kicking ass at the box office. And to piggyback on that, not to like drop trivia left and right, because there's a million and one trivia things about this movie, but it did make more <laughs> money than the Batman Begins um, its entire domestic run within six days of its release. I saw that too, and I was like, damn. And that's, I, 
again, I feel like this, I could jump into this next week, but I think that's a credit to Nolan. I think he brought such buzz back into the Batman franchise that, I mean, I remember, I remember I was in college when this came out and that summer, I mean, it was, it was like the, nobody else talked about anything besides the dark Knight. It for like a month. It was this film, uh, which it, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, I agree. I, that, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Um, IMDb top 250. Number four. The this is the highest movie we've covered so far. Yeah, indeed, indeed, because we have yet to cover the, the number one, Shawshank Redemption. Number two, The Godfather. Number three, The Godfather Part Two. And just to round it out, I also went to the, the fifth one, which is 12 Angry Men. Um, so that's some, some company it is keeping. Which, uh, bullshit. Here and now, right now, this movie is not as good as Godfather 1, 2, or 12 Angry Men. Are you fucking kidding me? This is why that list is such a shit show. Like, 12 Angry Men is a movie that fucking changed movies. And I get, okay, Dark Knight did, I guess, but can we get maybe 20 years in and and see if we still feel that way? I, I mean, I, I hear you. We're 12 years in, and it is, I feel like, just as iconic as it was when it first came out. That's that's fair. <laughs> um, uh, uh, it's got a uh, audience and critical Rotten Tomato score of 94%. Um, I really wanted to find Amy Nicholson's review on this, and every time I tried to upload the link, it wouldn't let me do it. Um, I also read Joe Morgenstern's, um, I think, Wall Street Review, uh, uh, Wall Street journal review uh, he did not like the movie but um i really like ebert's i actually really enjoyed his um and I, and it says i think what liz was hinting at earlier um it says batman isn't a comic book anymore christopher nolan's the dark knight is a haunted film that leaps beyond its origins and becomes an engrossingly tra- an, an engrossing tragedy it creates characters we come to care about that's because of the performances, because of the direction, because of the writing, and because of the superlative technical quality of the entire production. This film, and to a lesser degree, Iron Man, redefined the possibilities of the comic book movie, which really kind of sums up the, you know, what this movie did, how it was different from fucking X-Men 3 or Daredevil or, you know, any of these other comic book movies that had come out in the previous years. Um, even even to an extent Batman Begins, uh, I think even this is a pretty big step up. Well, there was really, there was really only two pieces of negative criticism, because I wanted to, you know, everybody, and that's the thing I think that we're going to struggle with a little bit about in this episode, is what else can you say about The Dark Knight? So I, I went a little bit negative with it, and I, I tried to find criticism... that didn't favor the Dark Knight. And really, as you mentioned, the Wall Street Journal, they didn't like it. And the only other one that I found was uh, The New Yorker, a piece by David Denby. And if you'll uh, bear with me while I read just a little piece of this, uh, his last paragraph goes on to say, I can't rate The Dark Knight as an outstanding piece of craftsmanship. Batman Begins was grim and methodical, and this movie is grim and jammed together. The narrative isn't shaped coherently to bring out contrast and build towards a satisfying climax. The Dark Knight is a constant climax. It's always in frenzy, and it goes on forever. Nothing is prepared for, and people show up and disappear without explanation. Characters are eliminated with a casual nod. There are episodes that are expensively meaningless, aka a Hong Kong vignette, while crucial scenes are truncated at their most interesting points, such as the moment in which the disfigured Joker confronts a newly disfigured Harvey Dent. 
and turns him into a vicious killer. The thunderous violence and the music jack the audience up, but all that screw-tightening tension isn't necessarily fun. I do have just one more sentence from an earlier paragraph I do really, really like, even though I disagree with it. All this ruckus is accompanied by, a pound, by pounding thuds on the soundtracks, which two veteran Hollywood composers, Zimmer and Newton Howard, uh, providing additional bass-heavy stomps in every scene, even when nothing is going on. At times, the movie sounds like two excited mattresses making love in an echo chamber. You know, because because negative criticism is just fun to write and to read. Yeah, uh, I I I'll jump out of the gate uh, with this. Um, two things: one, that guy can go fuck himself, and two, Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard are my unsung heroes of the goddamn movie. Good man, because this is, and I don't know, because Liz is a huge Hans Zimmer fan. I don't know if she'll agree with this or not, but this is his finest hour. He's, oh, Liz, go ahead. Yes. <laughs> Good answer. I mean, he's done. I do. I do like the Gladiator score a lot. Um, I, I, I oh, think it's he's so done good. Yeah, I, he's done, he's done a, a lot of great scores, but I mean, there's something about I. I I don't want to skip over I guess the plot but my first note the first note I have is the score dot 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 the fucking score <laughs> Well when you when you look at the making of the score in interviews with Hans Zimmer he was doing some crazy experimental things like to get the jo- the sound of the Joker he was running a razor blade over yeah. piano wire like who the fuck would think to do that and bear in mind, Hans Zimmer is not a classically trained composer. He didn't go to school. He is self-taught. Which, when you consider that and consider the scores that he's done, that is fucking mind-blowing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I just, I, I, I didn't mean to uh, jump anything. I just, I, I, I think the score is fucking great. I, it, it, it's just another great element. It's, it's one of many pieces that makes this movie very entertaining. Um, well, before we get into plot and and general discussion, if you'll permit me, I have uh, I have a couple oh, of you, lists that's that right, I would you like have to lists. share with both of you. And you love lists. I love lists. Liz, do you love lists? No, but I'll, no? I'll, I'll well, allow. Okay, you, you'll bear with us. Yeah. Well, well I we love, love lists, and I love lamp. That's right. <laughs> anyway, so Empire, the Empire also love lists. They make lists all the time, and they're great. So um, they did a top 500 movies. This movie fell at number 15 on their latest top 500. They seem to do a definitive one every 10 years or so. Uh, It falls in between Once Upon a Time in the West and 2001. But uh, I have their top 10, if either of you are interested in that. I Uh, I am. All right. So at number 10, we have Fight Club. Uh, All right. Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Singing in the Rain at number eight. Hey, that's topical. You're not going to like this. Apocalypse Now at number seven. No, I get it. I get it. I don't agree, yeah. but I get it. Uh, Goodfellas. Uh, Jaws. Okay. Then Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. The Empire Strikes Back. Ah, the top- fine. Yeah, I know. And then the top two are Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Godfather. I I okay. Here's my immediate reaction. You you can't have Raiders and Jaws both in there. Not in the top ten. Yeah, you no, also can't have Raiders as much as I love it above Shawshank. Like that doesn't. 
what? <laughs> just what? No, no. The clear, the clear choice is you dump Raiders and you leave Jaws in. I mean, that's just common sense. I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I, I mean, we don't, we have no sway at Empire, but I'm just letting you know I'm fine with that as a decision. <laughs> and then the, the second list. Um, so they also did at the same time they did a top 100 characters, and this is another list they've done a couple times. So uh, previously. In the 2008 list, uh, Joker was all the way up at number three, and he fell a little bit in the 2019 list, so here we go. Uh, number 10, we have The Dude from The Big Lebowski, which is great. I love that. I know, Adam, you're not so hot on that, but I mean, you can't you can't debate just how much a part of the zeitgeist The Dude oh, is. Oh, no, no. I, 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 I very much am aware of how prolific that character is. <laughs> At, at number nine, we have Darth Vader. Okay. Number eight, we have Tyler Durden. This yeah. one, the next one, right. the next one surprised me. John McClane is number seven. Okay, I appreciate I, I, that. Yeah, I I get the iconicness too, and, and yeah, yes. I have I have a lot of respect for him being in the top ten. <laughs> number six is Joker, so he fell from number three to number six in that okay. ten years. Uh, number five is Ellen Ripley from Alien, which is just oh, yeah. fucking awesome. Yeah, for sure. Uh, number four is Batman. Number three is Han Solo. Okay. Number two is James Bond. And number one is Indiana Jones, the greatest movie character of so, all time. So they're biased. And, and, and did they specify which Batman? Because that, that was my thought. Yeah, I know that's that's a pretty wide net that's to catch very, when we very talk about Batman, net. and that's why I think I think Bond is kind of a, a horseshit answer too. If I'm being honest, like y- yeah, you've got you really have to specify because there's yeah. a big gap between Connery Bond and Roger Moore Bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go, Empire, with your big old fucking lists. Things for us to get mad about or be happy about. Um. Okay, so so I I will say that trying to describe the events of this movie can get a little um can get complicated if you're just trying to like <laughs> like explain it to somebody so uh i'll do my best please god help me if if i go astray or leave something out so um we basically open and the joker has been wreaking havoc on gotham city for a, a while now um and while all of this is going on uh, Batman, in conjunction with Gordon and his his special team, are trying to uh, get basically like hit the mob uh, at at their banks and get their money. And at, as that's going on, Bruce Wayne and Wayne Enterprises is also kind of vetting Lau, but not really because we think that Lau might be helping the mob, which he is. And he takes their money, and only the Batman can bring it back uh, because then. Uh, Harvey Dent, played by Aaron Eckhart, can uh, prosecute him and get a RICO case and get all of these mobsters off the street. But the mobsters, uh, in a moment of, of desperation, go to the Joker for help. Thus, chaos reigns supreme. And then a bunch of really crazy shit happens that I'm sure we'll talk about as we go through the movie. That'll oh, work. oh, sorry. I should, and one other thing I should mention is that uh, Harvey Dent is currently dating Rachel Dawes, who, of course... Uh, Bruce Wayne has the feelings for. Oh. Oh. Okay. All right. That was, that was a very good recap. Okay. Yeah. I did, and I know I left out a bunch of like the like the minutia of what happens later on in the movie, but I figured we you know there's so many moments to talk about. So. Yeah. 
right off the bat, let's deal with the recasting. Maggie Gyllenhaal versus Katie Holmes. <laughs> Liz, do you want to weigh in on that? Okay. First off, I have to say Maggie Gyllenhaal is one of my unsung female heroes. I love her. I have loved her since I first came into contact with her with Donnie Darko in my teenage years. I think she's an amazing actress. But was it jarring to watch Batman Begins with Katie Holmes and then to walk into this movie with not, you know, internet was not like a super big thing. I had a Razor phone. I was not hip on recasting you know twitter was young okay uh, so i didn't know that that happened and it took me a hot minute walking the theater and be like wait uh what um that was my exact thought about it but i also think that maggie does a, a good enough job but she i think ian put it perfectly like she she's trying a little too hard in this i i genuinely feel like she just isn't she doesn't get it quite as much. There, there was an innocence to Rachel that Holmes provided, and Maggie just she's a little too hard for the role. I, I genuinely believe that. I think she is great and amazing at so many things, but this role was just not meant for her. And I think it was a last minute. I don't know what it what caused that decision. I don't know if it was lack of interest or lack of availability, but I just it didn't it didn't fit her. It didn't fit her acting style. Yeah, from from what I could read, there was no because Melissa watched this with me too, and you know she immediately asked, "Well, why didn't Katie Holmes do it?" And so I, you know, I got on my phone really quick and kind of looked it up, and it just seemed like she didn't want to get tied down to a franchise, really, and that she wanted to. She was, for 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 better or worse, uh, kind of free of Tom Cruise, and um, I think she was actually getting to do stuff again, and you know she w- and she went on to do other cool things. I think her her performance in Thank You for Smoking is actually really good, um, but yeah, it, there wasn't like a really. I think we were both hoping for some kind of like, oh, Katie Holmes and Christian Bale didn't get along, and so she couldn't do the movie. I don't think there's there was just like, oh no, she just didn't really want to come back. And and the yeah and I I mean yes I I can't agree anymore. The vibe is totally different. And and Maggie Gyllenhaal is a talented actress, but it's it, it's like I'm not watching Rachel Dawes anymore from from Batman Begins. And and it is it's weird. Like like the her Maggie Gyllenhaal's little performance after the moment where um, Harvey Dent is almost shot in court. Um, she's so like catty, and if they're not if they're not shooting at you, you're not doing your job. And I was like, "Who are you?" <laughs> like, it's it just didn't fit with the Rachel Dawson Batman Begins. You know, we haven't we haven't done weak links. We we've kind of batted the idea around, but we haven't really stuck to it of doing. But she is my weak link in this movie. I I really hate. There's quite a few line readings of hers that I really don't like. That's one of them that you just brought up. Another one is. Um, Right before uh, Dent and Gordon meet, she goes, "Oh, be nice. He's a friend." I just, I there's something about that line reading that really rubs me wrong. And I think her, honestly, her best moments in this movie are the moments where she's reacting. If you look at her in the scene where Joker comes into the penthouse mm-hmm. and does does his his thing there, where he comes up to her and he's got the knife in her face and he does the second reading of the, "You want to know how I got these scars?" Mm-hmm. That doesn't look like acting to me. She looks genuinely terrified. And I, I have to say that 
I I probably fucking would be as well because that uh, Michael Caine is quoted as having saying that it's one of the most terrifying things he's ever seen is watching Heath Ledger do his thing. Now I don't want to jump into Heath Ledger right away because I know we're gonna spend some time on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I'm I'm totally fine with that. Um, so it, it's funny that though uh, earlier on that you mentioned you you kind of sought out the the negative reviews because I. Like I, I I love this movie and and I've already made that probably pretty clear. Um, so I did I did as I went through. I made a series of nitpick notes and I've as I've uh, gone back through my notes, I've highlighted them because there are a lot of things that just don't make a lot of sense. And and I'm and I'm I'm I can I can admit that uh, even though I love this movie, and a lot of them a lot of them do tend to be. Um, based around the tech and the gadgets um so and and i do know that a lot of thought went into like the costumes and and how everything was going to work but um so let's i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of jump into the middle of one um and and if and if we don't know the answer to this that's fine i just but i just i just want to put it out there um how how do we get the fingerprints off the bullet in the wall um that's pretty simple, actually. Uh, I'm going to just show my true colors here. I'm really big into the murder podcasts and crime and investigation. Uh, forensic files is a comfort for me. Um, and so if anyone has put on lotion or if your hands are feeling a little clammy, right, and you go to grab something like a bullet and put it into a chamber of a gun, um, that's going to imprint your finger. It's not going to be visible to you, but it's going to be on there. And then if you dust it, it's, it's that's simple science. So, so they just so, made but, it seem more fancy. But, but the, the problem that I have is that the bullet, he gets bullet fragments, but then there's a whole scene where he's shooting into different, different chunks of concrete and he's looking for the right one. Yeah, they used a little bit of that. That that's that's totally fiction. That's not there. Or yeah, the, I think that maybe it was exist. the the blending of those two things was was making my head hurt a little bit because I was like, I, I get I get what exactly they're trying to do by getting the fingerprints. I just thought maybe the way that we got there was a bit um, just trying to make him seem more of like a detective, which which I read a lot about the way that they were trying to uh, advance Bruce Wayne from the first movie to this one, which is to, we've learned, we've saw, we see him train as a fighter and we know he has that. Now let's see him put things together, you know, really try to figure out what's going on and, and to try to get ahead of the Joker, uh, which of course is, is almost impossible as the Joker isn't really following any kind of game plan. So um, I do, I do like in a way that, that cat and mouse sense of, of, and I do apologize. I think I misunderstood your question. (laughs) Oh no no no! I just no, like I, I just like murder slain things to you, and that was not cool. <laughs> hey, you know I we do frequently in our household we will call each other dum dums, and uh, I'm like so that's just my I'm I'm a dum dum. That's that's me. I'm a dum dum. Um, well, the, that moment I think it's a bigger conversation that we need to save for the the next Nolan episode, but I think we can draw a lot of comparisons between Nolan and somebody like James Cameron. And that moment specifically for me is like the Terminator moment. Like, wait, hang on. John Connor sent his own dad back in time to save him and impregnate his mom. Like what? No, hang on. 
again, I saw Terminator way too young, and it, like, <laughs> is thinking it, is about it the... that moment, like, literally broke my brain. Is it the chicken or the egg? It's got to yeah, be one. Exactly. What is it? What is this? Yeah. Yeah. Which is it? Stop it. My um, my major oh, nitpick, and I it. really, really want some sort of clarity to this, and it's it's not a moment, but it is a sort of generalized look at not just this movie, but the entire Dark Knight trilogy, is the injecting of realism into them and and extrapolating on real tech. Now, for me, I mean, it's a comic book. It's a fantasy. Batman is a fantasy character, especially when you look at his rogues gallery. We have people that range from immortals like, uh, like Clayface and Solomon Grundy to characters that are just flat-out ridiculous, like Man-Bat, and Mr. Freeze and like Mad Hatter and all Killer of those. Croc. And so I don't Killer Croc, exactly. And I don't now that we're far enough past Nolan's sort of experiments with these three movies, is that was it the right choice to to try and make these films a bit more on the realistic side? I mean, my my immediate response is yes. Um and I I, I I kind of like the word that I like that you kind of said experiment. Um, I have nothing. I have no problem with 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 it kind of being phrased that way, um, because it, we see clearly what the MCU did. The MCU stuck to making, tra- you know, quote unquote traditional comic book movies. Yes, there's still a sense of of you know realism and drama and stuff, but you know, I mean. The, the entire, you know, Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame pretty much takes place in fucking space, which is which is fine. I mean, I'm not, uh, whatever, cool. But um, I, I for one, really liked how grounded in reality these were. And it, and it is that way. It, it's what made them feel different. Now, now, speaking of Zack Snyder from earlier, I think Zack Snyder trying to do it in Man of Steel blew up in his goddamn face um so i think oh that hurts that hurts my heart to hear no that. it doesn't no it doesn't because man of steel I, it, I love i love man of steel you i love that movie are an insane person yeah you can see it on liz's face as well that i am an insane person but i i liz you are the you are the resident batman expert in this family and on this podcast at the moment, the <laughs> let's talk about the realism. How do you feel about this realism experiment when it comes to Batman? At first, I hated it. Uh, I had a really hard time with Batman Begins when it came out. I was so pumped about it. And then to just have it feel like a Mission Impossible movie, I'm going to be frank. Like, it, it didn't... It, it took me a hard two, three watches to really get it and really appreciate it. And then The Dark Knight came out, and honestly, I feel like this particular movie, out of all three of them, teeters that line so fucking well. Like, excuse my color for words, but it really does. It it balances the, the, the reality and the comic book aspects of Batman so well that I can't criticize it. I cannot criticize this particular film's balancing of taking a comic book character who is so beloved to me and so many others and transferring it into a world that we see on a daily basis. It really 
sings home on that line and I don't think anyone but Nolan would be able to achieve that I, I just watching some of his other films like um I am spacing on the name of this Inception. Inception. Thank you. Inception, where it is such a reality movie, but it also is not. It is very much not real, but it feels real. You resonate with it. You resonate with the characters. You resonate with the surroundings. You resonate with their day and day lives. But this film, it's the same thing. Like, it keeps you going. You know that it's not real, but it is real to you. It's still a city. It's still a very normal city that has very normal crime um, the only criticism I have about the movie and its its realism is that it's very obviously Chicago. <laughs> um, I played a, I played a little too much of this racing game that I can't remember the name of, and I tried to look it up before this, but I cannot remember the name. But when I saw those bridges lined off across the canal, it's like, oh, that's Chicago. You know, the license plates, like those are they say Gotham, but those are clearly an Illinois license plate that have just been rendered, and it. Those are my only criticisms about it. That's all I got to say. Well, it, it might surprise you to know that that was actually a deliberate choice, is that they did want it to act, to feel more like Chicago this time around. And I, because Nolan Nolan had such a great time shooting there and loved the yeah, city that he's like, yeah, yeah let's, let's, that, not, let's not that. use too much CGI and let's let the city be the city. Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate that. I think it's always important to give a little shout out to the city that's offered you all these abilities to film there and create a film there. And I think that's amazing. But that was my only criticism. That's the only thing that took me out of it. It's just because going in, I knew Chicago so well that I was just like, oh, that's Chicago. Well, let's let's not tell Porky Pies because that wasn't the only thing that took you out of it. I feel really bad about this. Maybe, Adam, you noticed this as well, but this is... This was one of the first films to shoot partially on IMAX. And so now when you watch the film in a home video oh. setting, they have to switch between aspect ratios for when they're shooting in IMAX to when they're shooting on normal 35 or 70 or whatever they shot it on. And I unfortunately, I pointed that out to Liz on this viewing. And now I got the big fuck you because she's like, now I can't unsee that every time it switches aspect ratios. Which is, which is fine. I think it would have been a better thing to do with establishing shots, but it switches aspect ratios in the middle of scenes, especially if you look at the Hong Kong one. I think that was a little bit of uh, short-sightedness on their part for when the film eventually would hit the home video market. I mean, yeah, it, it, it can definitely draw you out, but I, I uh, bringing it, uh, kind of want to bring it back to your uh, recommendation of Watchmen. Like Manhattan's Big Blue Dick, after a while, you just kind of forget that it's happening. That it's there, you know, and so like on this rewatch, it really, it I I wasn't as I mean, and maybe it was just because I've seen this movie, you know, eight or nine times or whatever the hell it is. But you know, after the the opening prologue heist thing, and it, and it goes it goes back to your your standard you know aspect ratio. I was like, oh yeah yeah yeah, that's gonna do this. That's I'm I'm fine. I mean, it's I I'm not gonna let that <laughs> ruin my watching of The Dark Knight. I. I also have to say, like, the one thing that did throw me off that I did complain about uh, just coming off of Batman Begins, which, again, took me a while to love and appreciate, is that this is, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, the only Batman movie without a Wayne Manor. And that pissed me off a little bit. I know it was part of the plan. <laughs> I knew it was coming. I mean, at the end of Batman Begins, you know that this is going to happen. But I was like, 
you you're a billionaire and you can't rebuild your house in three years like what the hell like what happened and and that did throw me off a little bit because you didn't you didn't have that aspect but again i think that was part of nolan bringing in real life to this film and i can't looking back i can't criticize it but the first time around i was like where's the mansion in the gates <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I want to do another nitpick, if you don't mind, just because we, we're just kind of going all over the place. Um, so we we have uh, the the great tunnel chase. We have the convoy. We have everything that's happening with, um, you know, we, we find out that Commissioner Gordon has not been killed, and it's been a big ruse, and we catch the Joker, and Joker gets taken down into Central Holding or wherever the, wherever the fuck he is. Um why are they putting other criminals in the cell? Is 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 he alone? Or I, I feel like there are other people in that cell with him. No, uh, no, I think so. I think you would want somebody like that in severe isolation, wouldn't you? Yeah, and and I I gotta say, and and maybe this is my 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 recent thought of um, uh, police officers in general, but. Why are so many people talking to him? Like, we know the Joker's track record is pretty uh, prolific and ruthless. Leave, leave him, leave him alone. <laughs> like, I, and I do, I do, and I, now I say that, and I love the scene where he goes, how many, like, how many of your friends did I kill? And he talks about why he uses a knife and why, like, I knew your friends better than you did. Like, that, that piece of dialogue, that moment is fucking mesmerizing but like well the moment where he mouths six is probably is the best moment in his entire performance no it's not it's not the best moment but it's a good it's a good it's a good contender but yeah i so i i realized that i have an epic and then i immediately like what happens because it's there but i you know that's like just let him be let him be um but, I, I, okay, I guess maybe this is a, a larger thing. And it's, I'm not talking about uh, Heath Ledger's performance so much as the Joker's through line in the film. But he mentions so much that he doesn't have a plan, right? He, he's, I, I think he says something to that extent in the movie. And yet we have such a detailed plan as to put a cell phone into a guy's stomach knowing that he ate the Joker himself will be captured, B, that this guy will be captured, and that all the other chips he's put into place, again, other planning of um, of Harvey Dent and Rachel Dawes being taken and put in separate locations, only for the bomb to go off exactly when he needs it to, and then he, I get he, he dials it, but it's, it's, I, it's hard to, to put together how much of a plan he actually has versus this uh, agent of chaos that he claims to be. I'll just chime in here with that one. Um, I think ultimately what when he's asked that, he says, I don't have a plan. I don't think he means I don't have a plan for the next 48 hours because I certainly do. I knew this was coming. I meant it to happen this way. I think he means in a long term, he sees himself as someone that's going to be an impact onto Gotham and Batman and the police for however long it takes or you know he doesn't care he, he doesn't have a plan going past this point because all those things took place on one day that was one day of joker 
fucking with people. And so he's like, you know what? And they're, I don't have a plan. He means I'm just here to fuck your life up and I'm going to enjoy it. No, that's, that, that's actually, and thank you. That's actually a great point. Cause I, um, this leads to something else that this actually leads to something about the movie that I really enjoy it, which is kind of how episodic it feels. Um, because we get, you know, we get the attempt on, um, on the on the mayor's life, which is that you know during the parade, right? That's and that's that's one plan, right? Then we get the thing with um, with Reese, and if he's not dead within an hour, um, I'm gonna blow up a hospital. That's another plan. So that's true. I, I, I that's a that's a fair point. I, it's like a bunch of like mini plans, and like after that one's done, it's okay. What's the next biggest thing I can do to fuck with the city? That's that's a great point. I mean, that reverts back to, like, the animated series, which um, I'll just throw in one of my little uh, nods to this movie. Um, Past um, Hamill's animated series, uh, Joker, this is by far the best and most ominous, I'm not saying that word right, laugh, uh, Joker laugh, I think, that has been done. And um, and if you look back at the animated series... Uh, Joker has always got something new up his sleeve, but he doesn't recognize that in the episode prior. Like, let me turn fish into myself and try and sell them and get mad when they don't sell. You know, like, he's always, he doesn't think about it ahead. He's just like, oh, this came up and I'm going to do that now. He's chaos. That's the whole point of the Joker being one of the best villains of all time is that he is ultimate chaos he is completely unpredictable and you might know what he's going to do today but you don't know what he's going to do next week well let's let's just stick with this character then let's let's just get it out of the way let's do the heath ledger gush fest i mean i i can admit to being one of the people when upon hearing that he was going to play the joker responded with something to the extent of what the fuck? Um, and, and, and I, I, you know, cause to me at that point, I knew him pretty much as the guy from 10 things I hate about you and a knight's tale. And, and sir, and, Ulrich von Lichtenstein. Now, now here's the thing. I even, I say those two movies and I'm not even shitting on those movies. I actually very much enjoy those movies, but you know, he's also like, he's from the Patriot, right? Like he's this, He's this young, studly dude, and I just didn't, I didn't, I guess I just didn't understand why, why it was him, you know? I, I didn't know the depths of what he could do. And 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 at that point, yes, I had seen Brokeback Mountain, and um, I have come to uh, a different uh, uh, thought on that movie, having rewatched it a couple of years ago. But upon the first time I saw it, I was very much confused by it, and I didn't get a lot of what was going on. Then again, I was 17 and had different thoughts in general about the world anyway. Um, but also, his man, accent's not good in Brokeback. No, no. See, and I and I, I disagree. Actually, um, I think it's it's very much a character choice to to, to do that. Um, but what what I the second that, I mean, he he only gets that that very first line that you know, I, whatever whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. And we see him, and you you can clearly hear the the difference in his voice. And even that that brief moment of seeing him, I I legit didn't know it was him. I, I didn't recognize him. And I and still you know rewatching the movie the other night, besides the moment where he's. Uh, 
on the the, the color guard doing the twenty one gun salute um, at the com- uh, the former commissioner's funeral, and he's out of makeup, and you can clearly see that it's it's him. Besides that moment, throughout the entire movie, I I really forget who the hell that is, and that's maybe it, the biggest compliment I could give to any actor for anything. It's it's one of the great transformative performances, and it's a performance that I I appreciate more and more every time I see it because it's right on that ragged edge. You know how much craft and care and time and preparation has been put on it, but it feels like it could come apart at the seams at any moment. It's a it's a performance for me that I would happily put up there with Al Pacino in Dog Day Afternoon, with Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront, with Daniel Day-Lewis in something like There Will Be Blood. Again, you know how much craft and care has gone into it, but it could it could go over the edge at a moment's notice. It's a performance that says, I don't give a fuck. But I, I will say, like, um, I think there's a lot of controversy, and it is clearly stated on IMDb in multiple places. Like, people say, oh, the, the Joker role is what pushed him over the edge and what caused his death. And, and I do believe it may have taken, like, a slight toll, but his own family, his, his sister, who is very close to and talked to a lot, has come out and said, like, no, he actually really enjoyed this challenge. He really enjoyed this role. He had a problem with insomnia, and she had warned him multiple times about taking this combination of pills. In fact, she apparently did it, I think, that night before he died, and, and, and it just, it was too much. And, and I think that that is such a, that's such a controversy that, like, swirls around this, this film. I just have to address it, that... I genuinely think he put his heart and soul into this. I think this was such a huge launching point. And I don't think, I I personally, and obviously I cannot speak for him or his family, but I don't think that he meant for this to to be an impact. And if it was, I don't think it was on purpose. I, I think he did an amazing job um, doing this. And I, I think if, if someone had to say that this is my last movie, you know, on purpose, um, this, is, this is an incredible role for him. And I, I'm sad that, you know he, he he's not around to reap uh to to go forward excuse me reap to, to just go forward in this role i think it's kind of like matthew mcconaughey one minute he's doing failure to launch and then the next minute he's doing um ian uh killer joe killer joel you know and it's like what the hell you know and, and i think every actor that's a good actor has that role and i think that this was that role for ledger and, and it was such a loss um, to have him go before um, this film even really came to light. It definitely is a bummer that he didn't get to to revisit it because, I mean, in retrospect, I mean, The Dark Knight Rises just feels like a consolation prize now. Well, and I, I know that there... I, I You know, Nolan went on to say that he he wouldn't have... Had had Christopher Nolan known that he was going to make the third one, he would hey, first thing he wouldn't have killed off um, Two Face. Um, that that sounds like something he would have wanted to have explored also in the third film as well. Um, and and you know the two things that I I think about most when I think of Heath Ledger and this and this performance is um, mostly how you know all the other performances that we won't get to see because. Between between Brokeback and between this, like 
you saw like a, the, the widest of ranges of performances that somebody could do. And then if you harken back to the kind of the early stuff that he got known for, which is to be kind of a, a charming pretty boy. Like you've got so many different things that he could have done. And I think there are a lot of roles that could have come his way that would have been interesting to see him do. And he obviously just didn't get the opportunity to do them. Um, uh, and and I I know what my feelings are on this, but I I wanted to ask you too since since we were talking about Heath Ledger, do you think that the fact that he passed away before the movie came out helped all of the awards that he would go on to win? And I know that comes from a morbid place, but I I'm 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 curious. I think that there were definitely some uh, what do you call them. I guess, for lack of a better word, sympathy awards that were given. Um, But I also think that people can him and haw about it being overrated performance and blah, blah, blah. But it really was a good performance. I mean, even his interactions with Aaron Eckhart, you know, Aaron Eckhart said that he was incredibly impactful on him, you know, especially during, you know, filming the hospital scene. Um, I can't say that all of them were in regard to him passing. I definitely think, of course, there's going to be some out there. But why is that so wrong? We do that for everyone. You know, if you have a good actor and they're lost, like, they may get a sympathy award. And that's okay because their life is no longer here with us. And I don't see why that's such a point of controversy. Yeah, okay, so someone got it this year because they're no longer living. Like... You're going to be here next year. Go make something better and, 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 and try again. And that might sound cold, but that's how I view it. Oh, no, I don't, I don't think that's cold. I think that's, that's fair. I, I have no problem with him winning whatsoever. Oh, I, I don't either. And, I, and I, I, I guess I'm part of the majority in just feeling that this is a, a, a totally captivating performance. And I think, I, I mean, I think he would have gotten nominated. For sure. I think he would have been up in contention with everybody else. I know um, one of the few awards he didn't win was um, at the National Board of Review. He it was one of the few Best Supporting Actors he didn't win. He lost to Josh Brolin in Milk, which is which is a, a good performance in that movie. Um, but I, I feel like that, that performance isn't as impactful or being... Uh, he's not being asked to do as much as as Heath Ledger I think willingly chose to do uh which is a, a pretty big difference there too. Well, and when you consider the the shoes that he had to fill, I mean Jack Nicholson had done the role before him and so I can't imagine the intimidation factor when you're like holy shit. Really? I got to follow Jack Nicholson? So, you know how I think I don't know what episode we were we, we were talking about this, but we were talking about um we Tom Hardy in uh Bronson came up. And, and I mentioned like, man, if there was a role that like, I would like love to, to, to take a crack at like that, just, I, I, and maybe it's, it's the, it's the theatricality of what that movie ends up being all the stage stuff. And I, I just really enjoy that. Um, here's, here's what I'll say. And this might be, this might be a divisive opinion. Um, if, if, you know, pre pre casting of the dark Knight, Christopher Nolan comes to me and says, Hey, I want you to be the Joker in in the next film that I do. Um, 
Uh, and obviously, I know that Jack Nicholson did it before, but I want you to do it. Does 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 the fact that you're 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 stepping into to do the next Joker and and going to be compared to Jack Nicholson does that scare you? And my immediate response would be no, because I think that performance is beyond over the top. I think Jack Nicholson in Batman is 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 cartoony and fine, I guess, for that world. But it's not like we were talking about Denzel's Mount Rushmore. This is not on Jack Nicholson's Mount Rushmore. It, it is not. You could say maybe because it's iconic, but in terms of performance, I don't fucking think so. And I will have to say, like, Ian kept asking me, he's like, well, if you want to do uh, a recording with us, like, you want to do Batman 89, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, no, I can't. I can't because that is honestly my least favorite Batman movie. Like, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> For I- shame. For shame. That is shame. I know because I'm comparing that to Batman and Robin, which was horrible. But I did not appreciate Batman 89. I can't. It's over the top. It was too comic book. It was too Jack Nicholson. Like, he was just not. (laughs) I see why they made that choice. I totally do. And I respect him as the Joker he is. But my god just too much too much and if i was heath ledger and someone asked me that i'd be like well fuck yeah because that was funny (laughs) and that's it well while we're on batman 89 keaton is still my batman i'm sorry bale throughout the course of these three movies this is not this is not bale's best work okay well i by no means think that this is Bale's best work, but I, I he he's my Batman for sure. It, it really, over over Keaton, see, because for me, I have a I have a problem with actors who take this role on because they either do one or the other really well. They're either a good Batman or they're a good Bruce Wayne, and and so few of them seem to be able to do both really well. And I think Keaton kind of set the standard. <sighs> I think Keaton is a Batman, but. Bale and and Ian mentioned this during the filming that uh, that Bale had too much Patrick Bateman still in him um, from American Psycho, uh, and I countered back immediately that to be Batman, to be Bruce Wayne, not Batman, but to be Bruce Wayne, you need a little bit of Patrick Bateman. You need a little bit of that pompous attitude. You need a little bit of that arrogance, um, and I think. I think Bale portrayed that um, so well. I don't think any, I can't think of anyone else that would have been able to pull off both of those roles so well. Um, yeah, I, I have to agree with Liz. Um, and and it's kind of, it, it kind of combos between The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, but you know, we get all like we get him helicoptering into uh, the party that he's throwing for Harvey Dent. He's being very like very pompous, you know, like yeah, good, nice slogan, Harvey. And but he's kind of sincere for a moment, and he's he's got this, he's got the pompous scumbag thing down really well. And and but we we it has to be it. I think it has to be to that level of arrogance because a it makes the moment where he he saves. Um, the car, uh, the car with Reese from being from getting hit, um, it makes his but his reaction like what trying to catch the light like who was in there and like we get we you know it, and it, 
not only and it, it throws off Gordon in that moment, but then like the ultimate thing coming later in The Dark Knight Rises, where um, Commissioner Gordon realizes at the very end who Batman was, and you can even hear it in his like, he's like Bruce Wayne, like like it's he's so thrown off. It's not. I don't want Bruce Wayne to be a philanthropist. I don't want him to be a good guy. I like the the shift in in his Bruce Wayne because it it if 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 Bruce Wayne is such a nice guy, then maybe he actually is Batman. But I really like the idea of Bruce Wayne's a fuckface. He could never be Batman, and it just makes that that dichotomy a lot stronger. Well, that's that's exactly the both of you are, are making exactly my point is that when I said that I don't think I, there's a lot of no 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 hang on stay with me that a lot of actors they can either do one or the other well he's a better Bruce Wayne than he is a is a Batman I I like him when he's on screen as Bruce Wayne his Batman is uh, it's not great I think that's the whole I mean, point though is that Batman is not supposed to be this fucking superstar especially in this movie and and when we get to the unsung well, hero No, Joker's a Joker's a better Batman than Batman is. But that's the whole point is that Batman at this point in time in this timeline in this Batman universe, he is not well liked. He is still being hunted. He is not the superstar that all these kids are like, "Can I have your autograph?" He is the subtle character doing what he feels right for Gotham and ultimately for Rachel and for Gordon. He is still a loyalist to these people close to his life. And if you meet anyone that does have that pompous attitude in real life, they still have those people that they will go out of the way for. They still have those people that they care more about than than their own breath. And I think this film really brings that home. Uh, Liz, I, I'm curious because you, you you started to kind of hint at it. Um, I I want to know who your unsung hero is. Um, this is gonna sound weird, uh, but through this whole trilogy, and I I'm sorry to summarize, but um, Michael Caine's Alfred, uh, his moral support, uh, to Bruce Wayne and Batman, um, throughout this, um. This whole thing, just his words of wisdom, uh, you want to call it his Miyagi or whatever, uh, it, um, I love his character. It's such a subtle role as Kane is known for taking, um, but it's a powerful one. And I think like even the point where after Rachel dies and, and she, he has that note and he removes it from the breakfast tray, like just his support of Bruce Wayne throughout everything and how much love he has um, kills me. And I, I feel like he doesn't get enough acknowledgement for how perfect of an Alfred he is because that is Alfred. You read the comic books, Alfred is more of a sidekick to Batman than Robin is. And I don't think that that is acknowledged enough. I can't argue that. It's, it's great. And especially in the third one, I mean, we see Michael Caine cry. I didn't know Michael Caine could do that. <laughs> As, what about- as a British as as a British person, that really like growing up with Michael Caine movies and him being so part of much of my my life and that he's being this hard man and playing so many gangsters and being this tough guy. I like wait he can he can cry like that like made me question a lot of things in my life. What about you guys? Who's your guys' unsung hero? Well, I think Adam, you already said it's Hans Zimmer, right? Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm going to go with, uh, I, I was torn, because I love, like like Liz, I want to appreciate somebody across the entire trilogy, and if I'm to do that, it's Gary Oldman. Absolutely okay. adore Gary Oldman in these films, but he's he's not my unsung hero of this film specifically. If I were to say an unsung hero of the entire trilogy, I'd say Gary Oldman. But for this film specifically, it's Wally Pfister. Now, as much as I love Sin City and Watchmen, and I do think those are the two greatest book comic book movies ever made, Wally Pfister made the best-looking comic book movie. This film, the way it looks, every single frame. You could. This is one of those films where you could print and frame any moment in this movie, and it would be a beautiful piece of art. Like He made the best-looking comic book movie ever. And his collaboration with Nolan is its one of the all-time great director and cinematographer collaborations. Well, and just to, to kind of splice ours together for a second, I mean, I, 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 it's so weird. Like, the movie starts, and that score is starting to kind of rise, and then we get that as the camera's pushing in. That ticking clock, yeah. Yeah, before the window, like, bursts out, and we're about to start, like, in on this heist. Like, I... I get so jazzed and it's it is truly the combination of the score and the cinematography because we haven't met the Joker yet. We don't even we don't know what's going on in the plot of the movie. We're just hearing some fucking great music and watching some great images on on our screen. And I think in tandem, I think uh, I know we'll talk about this more next week, but um, I I think Christopher Nolan surrounded himself with some really fucking talented people. So we've we've talked about unsung heroes. I want to go to favorite shots now. Um, now, in terms of in terms of scenes, like I really like basically every time the Joker is talking to somebody in the interrogation room, whether it's whether it's Oldman or Bale or that other cop. Like I I really love his acting work in that scene. But my favorite my favorite shot. Um, it really is. It's it's all of the images that have to do with trying to transport Eckhart across town and being uh, reverted to underground, and like seeing the cars on fire and everything that happens below in the tunnels. But oh my god, flipping the fucking semi and the music cutting out—that is fucking amazing. That moment. Now, oh. I don't know if you remember the first time you saw this in a cinema, but I was in a screening where we were all jamming and feeling the same feelings. It was one of the quietest screenings I've ever been in. Everybody was on the same wavelength until that moment. And everybody, so I, when I saw it, I saw it opening day. It was like the first or second screening. It was at the brand new AMC that they opened up on South Center. I was, I was just kind of given the day off and I was like, fuck it, I'll go see the new Batman movie. And like I said, great screening. The crowd went fucking nuts. Everybody lost their goddamn minds when that moment happened. People were standing up and cheering. Like, you literally couldn't hear the next 60 seconds of the movie because everybody was fucking losing it when the truck flips and he does the backwards, like, up-the-wall thing with the bat pod and flips it back around. People just lost their goddamn shit. Now, now I don't give a shit about the bat pod. I think I think how that how the bat pod works is a, is a feat of technology that we don't have the time to get into. But God, oh man, that fucking truck flip is just—it's—it's it's one of the coolest things I've seen in a movie, and I I, I love it to pieces. And can we just uh, not to take away from 
the amazing chase and vehicle scenes in this movie, but I'm going to give a shout out to Conway Wycliffe, who was a stuntman um, on this film. He died on September 24th in 2007 while filming this um, while the uh, Batmobile was blown up. This is the set um, where he was leaning out the real window of a car. Um, the driver was uninjured, but the driver forgot to take a 90 degree right turn um, at the end of the stuntway and ran into a tree and the driver was uninjured, but Conway died. That's a, bu- that's a bummer. Well, he was, uh, I believe the movie was dedicated to both him and Heath Ledger. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. But I just wanted to take a moment to give a tribute to him for helping film all these incredible chase scenes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate that. What's your uh, favorite shot, love? Uh, my favorite shot goes hand in hand with my unsung hero, and it's the shot where um, Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne, and Alfred are shutting down the bunker, and uh, Alfred uh, gives him that tribute about, you know, take being the bad guy. Batman can handle that. That's what the city needs right now. And that iconic scene, once again, this reinforces my uh, feelings about Alfred. It's him and Alfred, not him and Robin, not him and anyone else walking away as the lights just shut down over and over and over again. And I think that is just such an incredibly powerful scene. Of course, there's the freeway chase scenes, which are super radical and cool and upset the people of actual Chicago. And God bless them for being (laughs) like, hey, uh, there's people running down my highway right now and I don't know who you are. But um, I don't know what Ian's doing with his camera right now. It's very distracting. I'm sorry. Uh, But that's my favorite scene in the whole movie. What about you, Adam? Or we already talked about yours. We did. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's been a long day. Ian, what about you? Well, I I struggled as I as I mentioned. Wally Pfister is my unsung hero, and uh, I I like I said, you could pick you could pick a shot, and you could frame it. Uh, it would all it would all make great wall art. But because I think we have such a, a connection and we have such an appreciation and a love of what Heath Ledger did in this film. I think it's the final shot of Heath Ledger upside down. And when he says to Batman, I think we're destined to do this forever. And the fact that Ledger and Bale didn't get to do this again, I think it, it really, it stings. And so mine is more of like a, a, not a favorite shot necessarily, but it's more of like in tribute. Like I really love that that upside down where he's swinging back and forth and he's, he's talking about. Do you think that I would have risked the fate of Gotham in a fist fight with you? And he's teasing him about har- how he set Harvey Dent off and things like that. And I don't. I just there's something about that. I I was when I remember sitting in the first screening of that and watching it and going, oh please don't do the don't do the, the Nicholson thing and just let him die. Like this character deserves to, to live on. And of course he does that last minute catching him with the grappling gun and, and pulling him back up. And I love the way the camera just very slowly tilts until, you know, he's hanging upside down, but he's, you he's know, right side up. He's, yeah. He's right side up. Oh, it's so, it's so good. It's almost like, you know, it is a great movie, but man, this deserves to be in an even better movie, uh, a stroke of genius like this. So if you'll permit me, that, that kind of bleeds into, to, and again, I mean, I know we're running very long here, but I, I really do want to talk to you guys about the third act. And this is where a lot of my problems lie with this film, is in a perfect world, 
in my mind. Obviously, we would have gotten another film that dealt with Joker and dealt with with Two Face, uh, because I feel like like Aaron Eckhart, his performance suffers a little bit. I don't know how much of it is him. I don't know how much of it is the script, but I feel like he wasn't really allowed to flesh out his character as much as he could have when he transitions from being, uh, uh, from from going to Harvey Dent to um, Two Face, and again, this is all just a hy- hypothesis. But in a perfect world, the movie to me ends with Alfred burning the letter from Rachel, Joker is on the run, Bruce Wayne is utterly destroyed, and then Harvey Dent wakes up in the hospital as Two-Face. I think that would have been one of the greatest cliffhangers. of. It would have been the cliffhanger that finally beat The Empire Strikes Back. And then we go into the third film, Joker's on the run, and oh my god, now there's this new threat. There's, there's Harvey Dent who has become this utter monster. And it's about Batman finding redemption in in both trying to balance this fight between stopping the Joker and protecting Harvey Dent from himself. I'm just going to say that is my only complaint about this movie is the Two-Face timeline. It really bothered me that he didn't see the third film. And and that's it. That's all I can complain about. And I'm done. I yield my time. You know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the senator from Washington appreciates that. Um, uh, you know, I, I, hearing that as an idea, I think is very interesting. Um, I I generally hate cliffhanger endings like that. I find them very gimmicky. Um, they make me more upset than excited most of the time. Um, but there there's something about, again, I do like how episodic this feels. And, and there's a lot of, I actually really appreciate, I think it's uh, Lee Smith is the editor. Um, really appreciate the cross cutting throughout the entire um, film. And uh, I know it's, I, I agree that it, the, the switch from Harvey Dent to two face is pretty quick. Um, but I do feel it. I remember I, even though I, I, you know, we've all kind of expressed a bit of a distaste for making Gyllenhaal in this film. Um, I, that there, there's something about the moments where, uh, you know, Batman ends up where Harvey Dent is because, of course, Joker gave him the wrong addresses. And I remember thinking back to when I first saw this, and I genuinely was surprised when that happened. Um, oh, it's a heartbreaking moment. It is, and and I do, I do really feel like, even though it, it could have been longer, it could have been expressed more. I I really feel the change happening when when Gordon comes in and he's he's demanding him to call him by the nickname they had for him down. At uh at that um major crimes uh I don't know I I like I I don't like an overly long movie and while you easily could have made this shorter by doing what you said and kind of extending it into a third film I like the series of of vignettes basically that we get that are obviously connected by the Batman trying to catch the Joker um I I I I I really like it and I I'm kind of you know and I I know I also read that you know um. Part of the Dark Knight is not just you know that that Batman's the hero that he's you know in a way he's the antihero he's taken the fall for this but that it's also Harvey Dent's fall from grace you know the White Knight having switched to the Dark Knight um and I, I like that it works on that level too I, I like how much we get in this to be honest I I I will say that I think that's where the Dark Knight Rises fails more in my mind is that there is 
there is just way too much happening. That movie is is very, very long. I think this movie teeters that line really well and doesn't quite cross over it for my taste. Liz, did you want to weigh in on that hypothesis? No, I, I think Adam said it well. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah, fuck you and fuck your hypothesis, buddy. I I know. Fuck fuck many of my hop- hypothesis across this uh, series of episodes. Um. Uh. Yeah, man. I mean, I I just I feel like there was some some missed opportunity. I think the biggest missed opportunity of all has nothing to do with this film is the fact that Billy D. Williams played Harvey Dent in in the Batman '89, and we could have had Billy D. Williams playing Two Face, but that's that's a conversation for when we tackle that episode. <laughs> sure, you you just remind me, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> well, uh, you know, if we if we have if we have nothing else to say, I I do want to make a confession to both of you: is there is a moment in this film that does break my black little heart, and I do cry every time. And the reason why Oldman is my uh, unsung hero across the trilogy is there the moment I, I do really as much shit as I just talked about the third act and how I think it could have been done better and how I think there's a better third film that in an alternate universe could have happened when Oldman says don't punish the boy punish me I fucking feel that man I feel that deep in my core and when Eckhart does say this is the moment where Eckhart redeems himself in his performance when he says I'm about to oh man I fucking feel that. Yeah, it's it's intense. I I I tear up every time. Yeah, and I yeah, and I yeah, and I just I do love the uh, how the the coin changes too, and how that that really I and just the way that he's gonna put everything up to chance fifty fifty. That's the odds that Rachel had, and I do think that this as as many as many plots as there are, I do, it does feel pretty tight, tightly. Um, Tight, oh god, what's word? Look tight. It's a tight script. I do feel like there's nothing really gets left behind too much, which is where I disagree with that criticism that you had earlier. I do feel like, you know, like I mean, sure, we don't know what happens to Lau um, specifically. Uh, you know, maybe he burns on top of that pile of money. I don't know, um, but uh, I, you know, I don't necessarily need to know what happens to him. I do think, in terms of the major things, I do think that it it all gets uh, in a neat little package at the end. So I, I realize that we could talk about this movie for another hour and a half, but I, I think we've come to question time. Yeah, there's there's too much to talk about. We didn't even talk about the interrogation scene, which, oh. holy shit, yeah, one of the I, greatest I, scenes the, 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 in modern film history. This is where I think it does come to question time. Adam, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> you, you got it. Uh, we'll start with our guest, Liz. Do you think that the Dark Knight should be in the book? 110% absolutely. I'm going to go next. I, I feel like I know Ian's answer, but I'm going to go next. Next, Adam, do you think that the, the Dark Knight should be in the book? I do. Ian, do you think that the Dark Knight should be in the book? You know, as much as I, as much as this, oh, fuck. <laughs> as much as I think that Watchmen and Sin City are better comic book movies, this is just a better movie in general. This is a comic book movie in a class of its own. And I think saying that, yes, this is a movie that deserves to be in the book, and yes, this is a movie that everybody needs to see is a little silly. It's a little laughable. 
because I think, you know, this movie made a billion dollars. This is the only movie we've covered that has made a billion dollars. So, oh, no, wait, we did Titanic. Excuse me. This is the only the second film that well, we've done I, that's I, made that much you. money. So, But, you know, it's the only movie of its type. No, it's, no, it's even not, because comic book movies just, whatever. You know what I'm saying. It's in I a do. class of its own. Yes. Anybody who hasn't seen this movie... If you wanted to see this movie, you would have seen it by now. But if you haven't, you're fucking nuts. Go see this movie. So does it belong in the book? Yeah, okay, absolutely. Okay, there you go. Great, great. So there you have it. That is three yeses from us. We all believe that The Dark Knight should be in the book. But of course, as always, we want to know what you think. So please hit us up on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you think of The Dark Knight. Is it as good as we think it is? Or... Is there another movie in Nolan's lineage that you think is better? Is there another better Batman? Please let us know. You can support the show at patreon.com slash 1001 by one. You could find us on Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those great places. And uh, uh, next week, man, we're we're going for it. It's going to... It's going to be a biggie. It's probably going to be a two-parter, let's be honest. It, it, it probably will be. We are going to uh, do the definitive Nolan ranking. We are going to talk at some at some length about all of all 10 of his movies going from following all the way up to Dunkirk. Uh, it, it'll be it'll be uh, a hell of a time. I can guarantee that. It's Go Nolan It's not going to be home. the episode. That's right, baby. <laughs> it's not going to be the episode you need, but it's the episode you deserve. Oh, perfect. That is just great. Uh, so, Liz, thank you one more time for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for putting up with us, love. <laughs> and until next week, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you to talk about some goddamn Christopher Nolan films. 